0: What's up guys? Happy morning to you. Uh, well, it might be morning, it might be afternoon, it might be nighttime, it might be midnight, whenever, wherever you are listening to this podcast. Uh, I'm just super thankful this morning that you uh, that you tuned in to listen to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of Mad Morgue Stories, where I'm bringing you the best in tech, tips, careers, convergence of marketing and tech, startups, CMO interviews and all that good stuff Um, today's podcast is a really special one not say that they're not all special but this one's particularly special this one's particularly near and dear to my heart Um, it's kind of um, the title of the podcast is if you want to move fast then you got to slow down right and that may sound totally counterintuitive to people you're thinking I want to move fast I got to slow down wait a second how does that work well the reality is I'm going to explain a little bit how it works and give you some context It applies as much to startups as it does to business in general. It applies as much to your work life as it applies to your personal life, to your health, to your relationships, to everything else that you do. And it's counterintuitive, like I said, but let's jump in and give you some context on why this really makes sense and why you really are going to have to slow down a little bit in your life and, and slow things down and think things through and figure out how you can be more organized and more thoughtful about how you run things in your life and in your business. Um, So here in the Valley, we're always surrounded by this intense urge to move fast, right? Everything in Silicon Valley is about speed. Everything in startups is about speed. We want faster processors. We want faster machines, faster phones, faster algorithms, faster load times, faster installs. Everything is fast, right? The pace in the Valley and innovation and in tech in general is absolutely insane. It's frenetic. And, and, and we live in an environment that is conducive to things happening fast, right? And the thinking has always been, you know, you either have to move fast and be first or you risk kind of moving more slowly and being second or losing. Um, but the reality is kind of like in a lot of things that I've seen in business, whether it's, you know, in tech or in soft drinks or in nutritional supplements or in video games or any other industry that I've worked in over the past 20 plus years, being fast isn't always the way to succeed. Being fast isn't always the smartest way. Being fast doesn't always mean that you have the best product. It doesn't always mean that you have the best execution. As a matter of fact, speed can kill, right? And and I don't want to sound just like one of these kind of like TV commercials where, yeah, you obviously if you're driving 140 miles an hour, you know, in a car on you know, tight winding curves, speed can definitely kill you. Um, but it can kill your company. Uh, it can kill your relationships. It can kill your most ambitious projects. Right. And, you know, when we look in business, you know, there's common business term, which is first movers versus fast followers. And some of you guys may have heard the term first mover and fast follower. Um, And you need to really look no further uh, to observe first mover versus fast followers than the smart watch market. Right. If uh, for those of you guys, you guys sporting the uh, the Apple Watch or Android Wear, whatever you may have, Fitbit, et cetera. Uh, It's a really interesting market and it holds a lot of lessons for us, right? So if we look at the smartwatch market, you know, Apple's share of the smartwatch market today is estimated to be somewhere around 21% of the smartwatch market, according to IDC, uh, the consultancy. The interesting thing is actually Apple was way behind in the smartwatch market a number of years ago. Um, Google with its Android wear had actually been out in the market for one or two years ahead of them. And, and Google was late too. There was actually a number of startups uh, that were first to market, uh, and one of the very first mar- to market in the smartwatch market was uh, a company called Pebble. I don't know how many of you guys have actually heard of Pebble or actually owned a Pebble, uh, but Pebble was one of the darlings of the um, of the crowdfunding scene. As a matter of fact, you know, back in 2015, Pebble was kind of on the cover of. A number of different, you know, magazines, and 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 you know, was featured a number of different tech blogs like Mashable and um, TechCrunch and uh, VentureBeat and The Verge and a number of others because they raised a staggering twenty point three million dollars on Kickstarter. Right, they were one of the companies. That really became the the darling or the poster child, if you will, of of the crowdfunding scene. They raised over twenty million dollars, but the funny thing is, uh, you know, somewhere around a year and a half later uh, in two thousand sixteen, they actually sold the, the company to Fitbit, um, and and they only sold for twenty three million dollars. So not exactly a great return if you're an investor on that company, right? Like you know, a little over ten percent return. Which is which is actually very very small, right? When you think of the exits that startups can typically command, and the reality is kind of they sold themselves to, to Fitbit, you know, um, for a number of different reasons. The market had gotten a lot tougher and had become much more competitive. Apple had gotten into it, Google had gotten into it, and the company was just burning through a lot of cash. Um, I'm not going to go through the history of why uh, why Pebble didn't make it, but obviously they were first to market. They moved very, very fast. They built their own hardware. They built their own software. Uh, but they made a, a number of strategic blunders, you know, in the process because they were moving so fast. You know, one of which was, you know, the company massively under, under invested in marketing. Uh, I knew people in this company. I met the CEO and founder and had discussions about marketing with him. And I spoke to people who worked at the company, who worked in marketing, and it was a company that was so driven by product and engineering, they were trying to move so fast that they didn't lay the foundations properly for, for building proper marketing team. They didn't build the foundation properly to build a, build a, a really strong brand, to you know, um, think of alternative roads to market, You know, to make sure that they had enough distribution, to make sure that they had enough advertising. They went really, really fast. And in reality, when you look at the market today, Apple, it was Apple's for the taking, right? Apple came around, uh, they took a lot longer to get into the market. They really studied the market. They really worked on their product. And by the time they rolled out to market, I wouldn't say that the Apple watch was perfect. It still isn't, but there's a lot of things that they did right and when they executed, they really executed flawlessly, right? Not to mention that of course, as a large company, you know, Apple had significantly more resources, right? Both in terms of marketing and distribution and brand and everything else. Um, When I was at Google, back in 2012 um we similarly made a blunder in terms of moving way too fast um andy rubin who was you know at the time um head of the android team and you know actually the founder of android and and you know a a really interesting guy in his own right um he had it you know he had this obsession with the fact that we needed to be first to market Uh, in tablets and and that he he wanted to make you know uh, a big splash in the tablet market and therefore You know wanted to make sure that Google had its own device with its own brand in the market and We literally went from I think, you know um, No product to basically signing a deal with a uh, I believe it was a Taiwanese um, company Asus to rolling out the Nexus 7 tablet in little under six months now for any of you who have ever worked in hardware uh, if you've worked at Motorola or, you know, uh, HP or some one of these other places, you know, going from concept to launch in six months for a hardware product is insane, right? It's, it, it is not something that anybody in the kind of like usually does. It, these, these kind of products take a lot of cycles to get out to market. Um, there's a lot of things that you have to take in consideration, and we did it in six months. And we were incredibly fast and you know tablet at the at, at the day was you know sub 200 tablet 199 uh it was a very nice device fairly powerful for its size you know you could hold it in one hand um very well designed beautiful device but where's the nexus today how many people have actually heard of nexus 7 tablets right you're probably sitting there scratching your head going um no uh, i i've never heard of nexus 7. well they're gone right they they kind of like um they went by the wayside and, and, you know, the reality is that we launched way too fast. We totally underestimated demand. We had a lot more demand that we could meet. Um, we launched so fast that we didn't have customer support properly set up. You know, Google is is at the end of the day a software company. We're not, We you know, we were not a hardware company. We're still not a hardware company, even though Google has made leaps and strides in hardware. And, and you know, if you look at the latest generation of, you know, Google Home, Google Home Max, Pixel, Pixel 2, um, obviously they have spent and invest a lot more time, but back in those days, you know, we, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, the situation was so bad and we had so many complaints because we were so delayed that we actually had customers showing up in person at the door of our Mountain View campus because they were so pissed off and frustrated that they couldn't get a response from us. That's how bad it was. Um, a big part of the problem, it was speed, right? It was It was this insane focus on being fast and going faster and getting to market for everybody else and showing that we could do it and, you know, establishing our mark in the in the, in the Android tablet space. Right. Um, don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't have anything against speed per se, and I totally get why in business and, and in many other areas in life, you know, moving fast is, is a good thing. Right. And getting things done is a good thing and definitely. Startups should have the advantage of being nimble and being fast and being able to out-execute larger companies. I mean, that's the whole reason why they exist and why they're able to do things that at sometimes uh, larger companies can't do. Right. But it can really hurt us badly when we go too fast. Here's a couple of things that really, really hurt us. Right. Um, for one, when we go too fast, sometimes we have incredibly crappy communication. Right. Right. Uh, you maybe have been in a situation in business where this has happened to you is, you know, you're trying to launch campaign too fast. You're trying to get things out the door. um, The product is about to be launched and you're going so fast that you don't have proper time to communicate to the relevant teams what's going on, right? And so maybe you're not sharing all the information about, you know, what kind of marketing campaign is being run. Maybe there are still some inconsistencies in terms of your pricing strategy. Uh, Maybe people are not quite clear you know, what the what their roles are in different parts of the organization. Right. Uh, Poor communication is definitely one of these things that happen um, when you're going too fast and it can really frustrate people. Right. People's expectations on top of it when they're not properly communicated to might be very different from yours. And as we'll see uh, further on in this podcast you know, there's a big difference between expectations and agreements. What's the second problem that happens when we move too fast? Well, you know, we don't have um, we don't necessarily establish lack of ownership. We don't establish ownership across the organization. Right. The reality is, if you really want to execute flawlessly, you have to ensure that as many people who are involved in the project as possible feel like they have some sort of ownership uh, in what you're doing. Right. And so when we don't spend enough time communicating we don't enroll others. And when we don't enroll others, they don't have ownership. They're not vested in what we're doing. They're not uh, feeling like they are part of the solution, right? We might tell them to do something, but since we're going so fast, they don't necessarily understand what we want them to do or why we want them to do that. The motivation is not clear. And so when people are not enrolled properly in a project, well, they're not as committed to it, right? If the project doesn't work out, they're like, well, you know, it wasn't necessarily mine to begin with, right? I did what I could. They kind of imposed this on me. Nobody told me that, you know, uh, this was so important or why we were doing this so fast, right? And that leads to the next problem, right? When people don't have ownership or when they're not properly enrolled, when they have issues with motivation, their motivation tanks, right? It's really easy for people's motivation to just get sapped when they haven't really been properly enrolled. And when they don't, understand the priorities of why we're doing what we're doing. And we're asking them to work weekends or we're asking them to work long nights, right? They feel imposed on, right? They don't feel again like they're owners. And so when they're imposed on, they're less motivated. And then when things get tough, the motivation tanks even further, right? So when people's motivations are low and then things get tough and, you know, we run into problems, well, what kind of solutions do we get from those people? Well, the solutions that we get aren't great, right? Because people are not really motivated so they're not really keen on stretching themselves they're not going to go the extra mile because they weren't in, they weren't involved from the beginning because they weren't enrolled because people didn't communicate properly to them and their motivation's not there right so when we have a problem and we ask them to fix it they might come up with a solution but it might be you know uh half baked right it might not be the best solution that we could possibly get Because they're not motivated and because they don't have any ownership, right? So they're not going to spend that much time on it. They're going to give you a solution, but it's probably not going to be the best solution that is going to uh, fix your problem. And if anything, if the solution is half-assed, it's actually there's a risk that it might even compound the problem and make it worse, right? What else happens when people are not enrolled and they're not motivated? Well, you get more and more mistakes, right? When I was in a startup called GetJar back in uh, in 2010. Uh, well, I was actually there from 2008 to 2011 before going to Google. We had built this, um, you know, app distribution platform, right? Otherwise known as an app store. We had started building this like way back in 2005, you know, before the app store. At the at the peak, we were doing something like 80 million downloads of mobile applications every month, which, you know, for a startup, that was that was significant, right? I mean, we were doing more downloads than than the Nokia Ovi Store was. Uh, And we were doing a significant amount of downloads compared to the other app stores that were out there. Of course, you know, the Apple App Store didn't launch until 2008, I believe. So we had built this architecture, but we had built it so fast with so little resource that the more we scaled and the bigger we got and the more traffic we had, the more downloads we had, the more things kind of started to break, right? Why? Because we had made a lot of mistakes. We were moving so fast that we hadn't built the backend infrastructure of our technology platform in a way that was gonna allow it to properly scale. And so what was the result? Well, the result was that as we had more and more traffic, we had more and more problems, right? We we had servers crashing, we had issues on scalability, we had pages not loading, we had files you know improperly downloading our errors. And the more traffic we had, the more the user experience suffered, right? And a lot of these things could have been avoided if we had taken our time and gone a little bit more slowly Hired the right people and really looked at the architecture of um, of our systems, you know, in a, in a different light. The reality is that the impact was enormous, right? We basically hired a new CTO, so we had to let go of our existing CTO. We hired a new chief technology officer who came in, who came from Xbox from the Microsoft team. And when he had took a look at this, he came to the conclusion that we essentially had to rebuild a large part of the backend infrastructure, right? And so all this speed and all these patches and all these half thought through solutions got us to a place where we essentially lost a year rebuilding our backend infrastructure, right? And that was a critical year that we could have better spent our engineering resources doing other things, improving our product, uh, going more actively, uh, aggressively after the Android section of the market, which was where all the growth was. And the mistake eventually doomed the company right, uh, along with all the investor money to the tune of some 40 million dollars that we had raised from venture capitalists, that was essentially all gone. Um, and I left the, the company in 2011 to join Google. And three years after that, the company was sold for next to nothing to a Chinese company, right? So the lesson learned there is, you know, we moved too fast. We made a lot of mistakes. The mistakes compounded over time. And all of a sudden, we lost a year of engineering time rebuilding our, our, our servers, right? Re- rebuilding our architecture. Um, momentum slows, right? And in startups, particularly, but in any business, it's all about momentum, right? Have you ever noticed kind of like when you get people excited and things start to just happen, they almost take on a life of their own? Well, the reverse is also true, right? When momentum slows and people don't see things moving you know, forward as, as quickly as they want to, and they they start to ask themselves questions about why things are slowing down, why things aren't happening, why we're making more mistakes, why people aren't communicating, why people's motivation is tanking. You know, it just becomes a vicious spiral, right? And and as the momentum slows, things get harder. When all these things happen, of course, you know, you start to create a toxic environment because as people make these mistakes, as they slow down, as their motivation tanks, as they propose solutions that are half thought out, which compound the problem further, People start pointing fingers, right? And as you may have, uh, you know, heard in my previous podcast on, on you know, seven signs it's time to quit. Well, you know, when things get really, really badly, what happens? A lot of finger pointing, right? The blame game starts, and people start to openly attack each other in meetings, or send nasty emails, or or have conversations over the water cooler uh, about why X, Y, Z isn't pulling their weight, or why things aren't happening because this other person, you know, uh, missed missed a a bug in, in a line of code, right? And so that creates a really nasty environment where things get much worse because, of course, people start blaming each other and and things deteriorate from there. And, of course, from there, it's very easy to see that, you know, the situation spirals out of control. Once you start to get into a situation, particularly when you're talking about a prolonged period of time where this, you know, this, this situation of poor communication, lots of mistakes, people pointing fingers, when that toxic environment persists, well, eventually, you know, the good people start to leave, right? Because they have opportunities elsewhere. They start to think, "What am I doing here?" You know, if if, if people aren't going to take my recommendations, my feedback into consideration, if my word's not important, if I don't feel like I have ownership over this work, if people don't even bother to communicate to me why we're making these changes or why we need to move so fast, maybe I just need to find a better work environment for myself where I don't have to deal with this, right? And so, when people quit, of course you know things just kind of fall apart from there and and this is one of the reasons that you see startups particularly struggle particularly here in the valley where you know smart people and talented people have so many options right and sadly when things don't go right and the motivation and the momentum slows people have other options they're being aggressively courted by other companies the grass is always greener on the other side right and i think this this problem is is compounded by the fact that you know, in our day and age, particularly among the millennial generation, people don't necessarily always have the stomach to see things through, right? And this isn't a criticism. This is just a reality of particularly the valley is you know when you have so many choices in your you know in your 20s or 30s, uh, and the grass is potentially greener somewhere else, or you have friends kind of telling you to go somewhere where things seem to be better. Well, you know, people move around, right? And the average tenure in jobs, I think, you know, has has shrunk. Um, So all these things happen when you move too fast, you know, finger pointing, people quitting, slowing momentum, lots of mistakes, poor solutions, tanking motivation, lack of ownership, poor communication, right? These are all the symptoms of what happens when you go too fast. These are the things that can happen, right? And then the next thing you know, you're running out of cash and it's game over, right? There's just nothing left to do. And and I've seen the story many, many times before. So naturally, the question then becomes, okay, how do I slow down a bit? Right. How, how do I actually move at a pace that is still relatively quickly, uh, relatively quick, but I don't I don't kill my company or I don't kill my organization or my team. So there's a couple of steps I want to go through here, um, which which in my opinion and in my experience have helped me tremendously, uh, even though I recognize that i don't always adhere to these steps as, as much as I would like. But here's kind of what what works uh, in hindsight. First, you've got to really identify all the relative uh, all the relevant stakeholders in your project, right? So the first step, you know, uh, once you've identified a problem or opportunity really has to do with figuring out who on the team needs to be involved and why they need to be involved, right? And, you know, it might just be a pain in the butt to involve certain people because, you know, you know that it's going to slow things down. But the reality is when you identify the right people and you explain to them clearly what's going on and why they need to be involved and you enroll them in this process, even though things might slow down a bit, you're going to get the right answers. You're going to get the right people working on the problem, right? And solving tough problems in business or in anything else in life usually is easier when you have a team of people working with you, right? Now, obviously, the bigger the team, the more complex that becomes and the more it slows down. So you really have to pick and choose and make sure that you're identifying the right stakeholders and the people who really have the ability to solve your problem and have, you know, the power to do so, right? Second, you know, enroll people into your project, right? I mean, a client of mine that I was working with as a coach, you know, complained that a certain person on another team never pulled their weight. Um, They were always kind of holding back when taking part in a project. And, And it was weird because when I When i asked this person why they felt that this this other team lead um was was not helping you know they basically didn't really have a a clear answer of of why that person wasn't helping um they you know when i asked them for example well you know have you have you ever tried to sit down with this person and really understand why they're not helping you as much as you would like you know what what their constraints might be um you know, my client's answer was, no, I've never really done that. I, I kind of just go and I ask them to do things and I tell them we need to get these things done and 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 then hopefully they do it. Um, but, you know, she never really actually sat down with this person and tried to engage in a constructive conversation and enroll this person in her project. And that was the realization for her during one of our coaching sessions. And so she really took that to heart. And, and instead, the next time she had a project... Um, she went and she invited this person for coffee and over the course of the coffee, she kind of asked him how things were going and you know what what challenges this person was having and how she might potentially help. And to her surprise, you know one of the things that this other team lead confessed is that you know he really wanted to help her out and he really actually believed in what she was doing. and he was excited about some of the new products that she was working on. but he just didn't have the bandwidth on his team to help her. He was just strapped for resources. He was trying to make some key hires, uh, he'd been giving some hires, but he he hadn't necessarily filled um, all the all the roles that he had available on his team. And on top of that, he needed to open um, new roles to further expand his capacity to be able to take on the volume of work that was coming on his way. And he was really frustrated by this. And it was interesting because you know once they both realized a little bit the situation that they each found each other in. Well, you know, she then realized that um, he was trapped for resources, though, even though he wanted to help her, he really couldn't. And her demeanor changed, you know, notably, as did his, right? And now she embarked in a process where she actually went to talk to other people across the organization and shared his plight with those people and worked with him to try and help him get the the resources that he needed, right? Which, of course, changed their relationship because all of a sudden he now felt that she had gone come forward and really listen to his situation, understood the constraints that he had and was now working with him to help him get the resources that he needed, right? And so by slowing down and actually enrolling him and speaking to him and actively listening and understanding what his challenges were, she all of a sudden realized that he wasn't helping her know he wasn't refusing to help her out of spite he was you know he was unable to help her because he didn't have the tools to do so and as she worked together with him to help him get those tools the relationship significantly improved right um the third thing you know uh, after after kind of identifying the stakeholders and enrolling these stakeholders into your project you need to make sure that you are communicating often to these stakeholders and also using the right channels to do that right and this is this is really important because it's kind of You know communication as as we identified earlier is one of the reasons why people fail when they're going so fast because if you don't tell people what's going on and you don't communicate often enough then people get blindsided by things and when they get blindsided they feel like they're not involved like they're not important their opinion doesn't count and i've heard this so many times it's like oh here we go again you know now you know the product guys have decided to launch this product they haven't even told us it's ready And they expect marketing to come up with a marketing campaign and they've only given us three weeks. And how on earth are we supposed to get that done? Right. And and we've all been there. We've all heard this. Right. So communicating often enough, you know, uh, is critical. Right. So you might even think about over communicating. Nobody's ever going to punish you for over communicating. Right. Um, You know, there's kind of a, a saying, which is kind of learning is repetition. Right. So the more you repeat stuff, the more likely people are to hear you. But I hear so often when talking to clients, you know, this phrase, well, you know, I sent him an email. It's like, okay, so you sent him an email. I mean, how many emails do you think he gets on a daily or weekly basis, right? And what is it about your email that is so freaking special that it's going to like leap out of his, you know, inbox and grab him by the face, right? It, you know, it just doesn't work that way. People have their own things going on. They have their own projects and priorities, And on top of that, by the way, folks, email is not a channel that is conducive to urgent business communication. I know a lot of people think that it is. It's not, right? Um, You know, if you want urgent communication, you know, maybe Slack is more important or 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 quicker uh, for some people. You know, for other people, it's a good old fashioned phone call. And for old timers, you might you might even want to grab lunch or coffee with these folks, right? So the other thing to keep in mind is just because you communicate to somebody. Don't expect that just simply because you send them five emails that they have basically gotten the message, right? Make sure that you are communicating often and make sure that you're communicating using the right channel. So understand for each one of the different stakeholders that you've identified, understand which is the channel that these people like to communicate on, particularly for things that are important, right? The sooner you get that and the sooner you're using the right channels and using them often enough the more likely people are to hear you. Now, important thing, just because they heard you does not necessarily mean that they agree. And I'm gonna talk about that in a minute, but that is important to keep in mind, right? Your 16 emails, five Slack messages, three phone calls and two water cooler conversations don't necessarily mean that they've signed off, particularly in some cultures, okay? That takes us to number four, right? Which is essentially, Understanding people's motivations. People are motivated by a whole bunch of different things, right? Some people are motivated by fear. For other people, it's greed. For other people, it's money. For other people, they want a promotion. For other people, they want more responsibility. Some people are motivated by the fact that maybe, you know, their spouse is hounding them every night when they get home, whatever, right? People are are motivated by different things. And the more you can spend quality time with those key stakeholders and actively listening to them and understanding what their motivations are the more it's going to be easier for you to find a way to get them to help you, right? So the trick here is that sometimes in order to understand people's deep motivations, you need to go beyond your own comfort zone, right? You need to put yourself in situations with them where it might not be the natural thing for you to pick up the phone and call this person. It might not be the natural thing for you to ask this person, you know, to go out for Friday afternoon drinks and try and, and understand what's going on in their life. Right. I had another situation with another client that I'll share who had this situation where, you know, I was on, I was in a session with him one day and he goes, ah, you know, this person's other team like never helps me. And it's like, you know, his boss had told him that it was important that he helped me with this thing that we're working on. And I had assumed that since my boss had told them, you know, that he was supposed to help me, that uh, he was going to help me. And, you know, he had come up to me and said, yeah, count on us for whatever you need. But then kind of whenever I email him and I ask him to do stuff and I check back in a week, nothing ever happens. Right. This person is just a roadblock and they're just not helpful and they just don't like me. Uh, and so we had a conversation about that. And I was like, well, you know, can you tell me about situations where, you know, potentially this person has wanted to reach out to you and work together with you? And all of a sudden, you know, my client was scratching their head and they were like, well, you know, he did kind of invite me to like spend some time with his team. And, you know, he's got like this hot desk thing going on, you know, where their, their team has a couple of other uh, desks lying around that aren't being used. And he, he invited me to sit with them, uh, you know, a couple of times a week. And And so my question was, well, why didn't you? And he's like, well, you know, because I've got my own desk and I've got kind of things set up there, and you know, I'm really comfortable there, and I don't, I don't really want to, I don't really want to go sit with those people. And and so my question then was, well, you know, how do you think that made that person feel when they invited you to sit with them, and they have this extra space, and uh, all of a sudden you refuse? And he's like, well, they probably didn't feel very good, right? And I was like, okay, great, they they didn't feel very good. They felt rebuffed, right? And so if they feel rebuffed. And then you go and you ask them for something. How likely are they willing to be to help you? Right? Point made. Right? So what was the answer? What was the solution to his problem? The solution to his problem was that eventually what he did was, you know, he approached that other person on the other team and invited this person to go out and have drinks after work for him on a Friday. And the result was amazing. You know, they went out. They had a couple of beers, you know, at this local bar near the office on a Friday afternoon after work, and they got to know each other a lot better. And they started to understand each other's motivations and they shared stories about their personal lives and realized kind of the things that they were going through. And the situation changed overnight. Right. Why? Because they didn't understand each other's motivations and they weren't properly communicating. Right. And when you're in a situation like that, where essentially you need to have a heart to heart conversation with somebody, the answer is not, okay, I'm going to jump on on Google Calendar and I'm going to put a calendar invite at 9 a.m. to grab a coffee in a meeting room to talk these things through and figure out their motivations. That is not how you get to people's true motivations. It does not work that way, right? When somebody comes into the office at 9 a.m. on a Monday, they are kind of thinking about their own thing. They're thinking about the things that they need to get done. They're, they might be miserable thinking about the fact that they're back to work on Monday and thinking about how awesome Sunday was. Right. You need to find a different kind of environment that goes outside of your comfort zone and have that conversation. Right. And this is going to be really difficult for some folks. And I get that. There's some people that you work with that you might just be like, there's no way in hell I want to have a beer with this person. Uh, And that may be true. Right. But that sometimes is how you really discover, you know, that person's true motivations and how when you spend some time actively listening to somebody else, you're going to find out things that might surprise you, okay? Next, and I just alluded to this one earlier um, when I was talking about communication and I was talking about enrolling folks, right? Like I said, those 16 emails and three voicemails and five Slack messages that you have sent this person that's supposed to be helping you does not necessarily mean that they have agreed to work with you or agree to do what it is that you're asking them to do, this is a problem that I find all the time in business and in life. Right? It's it's what I call um, expectations versus agreements. And and you know there's a there's a, a really well known coach um, who actually has a podcast just dedicated to this. I'm I'm struggling to remember the, that coach's name, um, although he's very very well known. Oh, Steve Chandler. So Steve Chandler talks about this. And if you're ever interested, you can Google up Steve Chandler and look for his podcast on expectations versus agreements. So the, the the point here is that essentially, those two things are very, very different, right? When you go to somebody and you say, I need this done by Friday, can you get that done? If the person says, I'll have a look and get back to you, that doesn't mean that they, that they agreed to do it, right? Although your expectation might be that they agreed, right? If they say, yeah, I'll get it done. I'll get it done by Friday, then you have an agreement, right? And this is the key. It sounds really, really obvious, but in many cases in business, at all levels of the organization, regardless of the size of the organization, people simply assume that because they've communicated something that that means other people are going to do it, right? You have to make sure that to properly enroll things you need to make sure that that person specifically agreed either verbally or otherwise to get the task done in the way that you want it done by the date that you need it to get done, right? One of the biggest problems is when you fail to enroll other people in communicating properly is that they don't specifically agree to do things, right? They don't agree to a certain date or certain way you want to do this. So the next time you're in a meeting, make sure you specifically agree on things. Oftentimes in this day and age, you know, people are using tools that help with this. So if you're using Trello or using Asana or you're using, you know, Google Keep and you can assign tasks to different people. When you assign tasks to people, you know, make sure that they're completely bought in and that they agree to these tasks and they agree to the dates in which they're able to do to do these things. If they're not able to agree, then, you know, get a counteroffer, right? solicit a counter offer from them. If they say, well, look, you know, there's no way this is going to get done by Friday. Fine. Okay, great. What's, what's, what can you do for me? What's the best you can do? Well, it's going to have to wait until Monday. Or look, I'm not going to be able to do like, you know, all 60 slides of that PowerPoint deck. It's going to have to be, you know, 40, right. Or I'm not going to be able to write all of the marketing plan. I'll focus on, you know, pricing distribution and, and, and promotion, right. Whatever it is, make sure that you get, you know, either verbally or or in writing, preferably some sort of response and affirmation about what it is that they're going to do and by when right agreements not expectations are the key to moving things forward okay so anyway um you know at the end of the day and i learned this from my coach when when i you know i hired a personal coach last year who spent nine months with me that was one of the most important things that i learned through working with this coach um, is that sometimes when you really want to speed things up you gotta slow down right it's just the way life works and this doesn't just apply to your work and your career and your company it applies to your life your relationships your friendships your health um, everything else that you do right uh, when it comes to you know work and 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 kind of career nowhere is this more true obviously than in startup land where because you have so limited resource right because you're so much more resource constrained than in a big company the mistakes that you make can really kill the company, right? You can really, really be hurt if you make mistakes too often given the speed that you're going at. So anyway, folks, uh, I hope this article was helpful. I hope it wasn't kind of like too repetitive. Um, Some lessons learned, things that I've seen, you know, when in doubt, slow down a little bit. You'll go faster in the end. You'll thank me for it. Um, Again, make sure that you subscribe to this podcast uh, and, and tune in. We have a really interesting uh, interview coming up with a a good buddy of mine and relatively senior uh, guy at Google that will be going live in the next couple of days. So make sure that you check back for that podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. You'll also want to uh, like us on Facebook and and, and go to facebook.com slash stories to check out all the latest uh, quotes and um, blog posts and live events. So we have a... Live a, um, a live stream that is going to happen next Wednesday, which is going to be on May the 16th at around 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So you'll want to tune in for that, and um, make sure that you follow us on Twitter as well at MadMork, and check out our blog at MadMork.com/blog/blog. Thanks again, guys. Hope you enjoyed the show and hope this was super useful. We will uh, be talking to each other soon. I hope you have a great rest of your day and great rest of your week, great rest of the weekend and everything else um, that's going on in your life. Stay tuned and I will talk to you guys next week. Peace.